1: So, guy, Nick Mason, sourceful of secrets, of which we are um, two fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're,
2: it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name! Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I
1: wonder. I mm-hmm. think I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason's all Sort of Seat. You did. And
2: in fact, that came up with a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's u Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway,
1: anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with the you know that incredible. It's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd, it goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. Goes up to 1972,
2: with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never mm. heard, stuff that no one's ever Echoes, heard. Frankly, obviously, Echoes is the big sort of. You um, know uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum. Don't you?
1: Yeah, I never met Magnum. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now, and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro
2: Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, The Set the Control Tour.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Rock on Tours podcast. I am Gary Kemp.
2: And I am Guy Pratt. This week on the show, we are talking bass with, oh, another of the country's
1: finest bass players singer, songwriter, producer, and actor, and founding member of Duran Duran. Please welcome Mr. John Taylor. Where'd you spend your lockdown, John?
0: Here in Los Angeles.
1: How was it for you? It was good,
0: actually. I got the virus like right at the beginning, oh. so I got it out of the way. And I kind of, I mean, I had to really work on not being smug about it, you know, because obviously a lot of people were hurting. But I was like, you know, it was a couple of really rough days. Right. But um, but then I kind of enjoyed not having to travel because I'm always back and forth a lot. I feel like I'm either packing or unpacking. You know, the first few months, I really, I really enjoyed it and uh, we got over to England about... I got back about a month ago. We were there for three weeks, and right. um, that was nice. I and mean, I'm getting a little restless. Yeah. You know, we got to find things, like you guys well, doing this. You've were... you just got to find things to do. Yeah, well, you cause... were
2: doing the same thing as me, John, where you uh, doing videos showing breaking down your bass lines.
0: Oh, did you do that? I did <laughs> Yeah,
2: that. He pretends he doesn't know, look.
0: I...
3: <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: I, I mean, I never thought... That was the last thing I thought I'd ever do, but actually it was it was terrific and it, it forced me to show up at a
1: bloody instrument you know it's not like the edge is it when it's like you know the edge teaching people how to play you know and he turns off all the effects and he's just going ding, ding, <laughs> ding, ding you know you were actually doing a great job there on the bass there john oh thanks <laughs> and i have to say this because i'm surra- i've got a pincer movement of bass guitarists, <laughs> but you come from a time when the bass played the lead which is the sort of, you know, when we both started out in music, and for Guy as well, suddenly the bass guitar, which was normally just in the background, supportive, was now up front.
0: In punk rock, it wasn't really a thing, was it? I mean, there were some really good-looking, you know, Sid and Paul Simon and there were some bass sort of stylists. But the kind of the new wave dance music that started to appear at the end of the 70s, bass became super important. I think it was like the disco influence. I mean, certainly for me, totally, I felt the totally. like, chic. That was the first time I really listened to bass. And yes, in a way, it felt like it was, leading, it was leading the track, but it didn't sound terribly difficult to me. It felt like something I could do a reasonably good imitation of, and I think that's why I turned to that, because I had been playing guitar, kind of so-so, and I thought, I think I could do a better job as a bassist, because, I mean, I didn't know any guys who were thinking seriously about playing bass, but everybody wanted to be a guitarist.
1: Yeah, well, bass players always say that, but really, isn't it the truth, isn't it, always like, we've already got a guitarist, do you play bass? Oh, well, I can get one of those, because that was your story, wasn't it? Well, right? my, yeah,
2: that was my thing, because I wanted a guitar. Against my wishes, I got given a bass, but, and which I hated, but when I got back to school, about three or four other people had been given guitars, and you suddenly realize, but if any of them wants to be a band...
1: Yeah. They need me. So suddenly actually you're in charge. Yeah. <laughs> it's like my my brother was a, my, <laughs> well. my brother was a guitar player in a punk band called The Defects. Their best song was We Are the Defects, So People Say. To which I would say, What <laughs> people are even saying it? <laughs> <laughs> Like like like
0: who?
2: Name yeah, them. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And uh, people are saying And then and then <laughs> we 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 you know we already had me and Steve Norman playing guitar. So uh, it was like, Well Martin, I'm gonna have to teach you the bass, of course you two then end up with the, as the best looking bass players in the world before that it was bill wyman my god what happened to bass players you know suddenly you were pop stars yeah.
0: <laughs> i don't know i mean i mean you know we're going back now and i i always think it's interesting to think back to the 70s and i know where you guys were coming from when when we would get the, the music media you know whether it was the nme or the melody maker or whatever and they had the end of the year poll, you know and there would be the best bass player of the year, best people player of the year, best drummer of the year, you know, which is insane to think of today, you know, because it's just not even a thing anymore.
1: But I'm forgetting um, Paul McCartney, of I course. Mean, they were, forget. Let's not forget Paul McCartney, of yeah, course. Yeah, so. but, you know,
0: even you know, even something like Chris Squire, yeah. you know, who really had a unique voice, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that um, we knew about musical personalities and the dynamics of bands and the chemistry of bands, you know. I was never terribly interested in artists that just kind of sang their songs with a backup band. I loved the idea that every every instrument was kind of maxed out, that the drummer was a full-on personality, yeah. like Roger Taylor, to name one off the top of my head, you know, and as was the guitar player, as was the bassist. And, and it all came together to make this sort of interesting... You know,
1: yeah, with Led Zeppelin. This or...
0: interesting hole. Mm-hmm, sure. Well, I with was, you
2: guys, because well, it seemed it, was, cause it was you and Nick, wasn't it, really, right? Who, but you were looking at the concept of a band almost more than a band, weren't you? I mean, it seems like when you started
0: Well, writing. we'd we had, um, like, the very first Duran Duran we started at my art college, and I'd met this guy, Stephen Duffy. Who I worked
2: it, with for years, and,
0: yes. uh, <laughs> Yeah, and, 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 and Stephen uh, was a songwriter, and so we were looking to find a way to put his songs to music, and... Um, and Nick bought a WASP, which was this really radical piece of kit that mm-hmm. came on the market. That must have been like seventy-seven, end of seventy-seven, this plastic synthesizer that, that kind of like had like sequency sounds in it. So you could make those kind of ultravox sounds, but very, very easily. It was like the next step up from the stylophone. And we bought a K rhythm box that you get in like a Hammond organ with presets like Foxtrot and Mambo. <laughs> and 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 so that was the first sort of wave of the band, but then Stephen left us to form another band more of a, and it was more of a rock Bob Dylan kind of influencing. So Nick and I, it kind of put us against the wall a little bit, right? We've got to prove something here. And so we really went full on electronica at that point. And then Roger was the next guy that, that we met. I mean, then we started thinking about these the rhythm section and the rhythm section should be a thing which nobody had really thought about. 76, 77, you know, nobody was thinking, we've got to make a rhythm section that's interesting. And, uh, you know, I was really into George Murray and Dennis Davis, you know, the Bowie rhythm Mm -hmm. section and those Roxy Music rhythm sections. So Roger and I, we would spend all afternoon, like, practicing a fill, you know, where we'd both go, boom, 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 dun, 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 dun. You know, and we'd just Mm -hmm. go over it and over it and over (laughs) it and then put it into the track you know we learned to play that's how i learned to play
1: who first turned you on as a as a kid did you go through the same sort of stuff that that we all went through glam rock and then into punk and soul
0: well the beatles were massive obviously and they were particularly big in my house because my mother was a scouser and she was like she was housebound and they came into our house like angels they were big i also got from them i was an only child and i got from them that they were like these four brothers you know, and they all dressed the same. Yeah. You know, they were like, the can you experts. imagine if one had you ginger hair uh, curly? <laughs> it wouldn't work, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. But you're right. But you know they, and they kinda of, and they went around the world and they just they just did everything that I wanted to do as a kid. And then Bowie was the you know, as I was coming of age, like 72, 11, 12, Bolan, then Bowie. Rod mm. I was into as well. Yeah, me too. Between, yeah, yeah. And all these bands that I'm going to see on big stages, you know, and you've got a queue overnight for a ticket, you know, and all of that. And thinking, wow, this is this is so amazing, and really sort of being enthralled for that world, but not thinking that it was a world that I could participate in. And then the pistols come along. And I'm probably fifteen when I first heard about them. And, you know, that changed everything because, you know, I like to say that you know, you didn't really have to know all that much. In fact, the less you knew technically about making music, the better you were equipped to join the punk yeah. rock revolution. What? What? Who was in Birmingham? I mean, well, punk rock. Well, everybody was in see? Birmingham because, well, everybody was in Birmingham. I mean, I, I mean, I went to see the Clash. Were my band? I used to yeah. go and see the Clash yeah. all over. I probably saw them about seven or eight times in 77, 78. Susie and the Banshees, who were like the first of the second wave of punk bands. I mean, I went to see them also. I traveled yeah, around. That was the when the fan, they,
1: she was a fan forming a band, really. Yeah, when I, fought, yeah I never saw the Pistols. I, I never saw the Pistols. No one, no one. Saw I, saw I saw the Pistols. I saw them. No, doing no, but that Nick lot.
0: Rhodes did. Uh, Nick, Nick, Nick did. And, and Nick will say to me, like, every six months, you'll find an opportunity to say, you never, you didn't
2: see the Pistols, did you, Johnny? You both say. I was like, I once asked Chris Spedding because Chris Spedding played at that the punk rock festival at, at the Hundred Club, which yeah. at least thirty thousand people were at. I've met thirty thousand people who were there, right? And yeah. uh, and and I said, so Chris, how many people were actually there? And he said, well, when the Pistols went on, it was about fifteen. When
0: they went off, a lot less.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But
0: it's amazing the impact that they did that they did have. You
1: know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I remember the same thing. And for me, the band that I actually ended up following was Generation X and and Billy Idol. I
0: love Generation
1: X. Love them. Because what we ended up going on to do was was to take a lot of that punk ethos and that energy and that do-it-yourself feel, you know, mixing it with 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 disco and electronica, obviously, but not being ashamed of being pop stars. And Billy was probably the only one in punk that wanted to be a pop star. And he, of course, he ended up becoming one in his own yeah. right.
0: The punk ethos was undoubtedly alive in what in what we were doing. I mean, you had to own your own your your own ground, didn't you? You know, there was just nothing worse at that time than copying somebody else because it just felt like, I mean, that everybody had their thing, you know, anybody that was interesting. And there was enough fertility, you know, there was enough interesting stuff happening that you could claim your own, your own so, ground. So how did you I ground that was the most well, important how thing. Did,
1: how did you end up meeting Simon then? And 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 what were your first early gigs? And and how much did the Rum Runner have to do with it all, This is the, the club in Birmingham?
0: Well, the Rum Runner was important. I mean, you know, that was Nick and I looking around the city looking for alternative venues. And I remember we'd gone, it was a Friday afternoon and we'd gone to this place called the Icon Gallery, which was this sort of alternative art space. And we talked to them about if they were interested in putting like, on a performance. Like the Indica of and they were <laughs> Yeah. And they exactly and they, and they weren't particularly interested we were just I mean, literally we were walking up the street by the town hall and there was a poster and it was the Bowie Golden Years, the shot where he's got the blonde hair and the cigarette and it had Rum Runner, Bowie Nights Tuesday. Right. And we were like, oh, Rum Runner. The Rum Runner was like this old school place. It was like, who goes to the Rum Runner? And we were like, well, that kind of looks interesting. We literally walked there. Up the steps, we saw this like office up above the club and we walked in and met Paul Barrow. And uh, and we got the tape on us. And he said, well, let's go and have a listen to it. And we went downstairs and, and you know, I didn't know this at the time, but him and his brother had just been to New York for like six months earlier. They'd been to Studio 54. And they'd come back with dreams of having their own Studio 54 in Birmingham. So, you know, it was all about, like, yeah, as much mirror flex up as possible and palm trees, but also a stomping sound system. And he turned on this sound system and put on our demo tape that we'd done with Bob Lamb, who'd been working Ah, with UB40. And Bob was was really important in the Birmingham scene as well. And so he put this tape on it. I mean, it sounded fucking great. And so he's like, hmm, you know, my brother and I have been looking to get involved in, in music. You know, you should get the rest of the boys together and come down to the club tonight. And um, that was like the start of it. And, um, you know, at that point, we didn't have Simon and we didn't have Andy. We had another singer and another guitar player. Oh. But they kind of got lost in the next the next couple of months. But these, these managers were keepers. And they started seeding us a little bit. They brought me an amp and they bought a drum kit and gave us somewhere to rehearse and, and gave us a job. Simon? Well, Simon, Simon was at the university studying drama and his lapmate had a job at the rum Runner. It was a fun time, actually. Well, actually, no, it wasn't fun. But we were auditioning <laughs> guitar players and singers and they were coming from all over the place. I even remember John Densmore came. I mean, I don't know how the hell that happened. The guitar player from The Doors showed up in Birmingham and we were like, well, he's not right. Uh, he was lost, but, uh, obviously. He was so bizarre. Yeah, he was on his way to see Judas Priest. Um, but, um, but like we'd say to the guitar players, no, the singer's off today, you know, he's sick. And we'd say to the singers, yeah, he's the guitar player. He's got to go and see his mother or whatever, you know. Right. But at the same time, we're kind of building this core, which was Roger nick and myself but we're, we're sort of developing a sound that works with drum machine patterns and sequences so simon is living with this girl who's working at the rum run and she's seeing that we're going through this procession of, of singers and she says you know you should meet my boyfriend you know my flat i, I forget if they were flatmates or, or boyfriend you should meet him so she goes home and she says you should go meet these guys that are working at the club so he comes down and um I mean, to be honest with you, it was like even before he sang a note, I knew he had it. I mean, we were pretty desperate at this point, but like I just looked at him. We talked about music for like 15 minutes. I remember he didn't sing the first day. He just came and we just met. And I'm not sure whether it's because I was late or he was late, but we just chatted. And I thought, this guy's got it. And he came back the next day and he brought his lyrics. I mean, that was like gold, Gary. Gold lyrics,
1: you know,
0: lyrical <laughs> yeah. ideas, because we've
1: got but not gold. Point, we he got never tracks. had. We... He never wrote gold. <laughs> <Not> <laughs> no. Actually, gold. I just want to make that, I just want to put that out there and make it clear. Single it for there's another court case. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's because uh, if I can just jump back, John, this first tape of yours that you took into the run, right? Is there anything on that that would be recognizably Duran Duran? Were you kind of already there? Or was it even, oh. or a song that went on to?
0: Well, there was, you know, one of the back and forths from our our early career was Girls on Film, because we, you know, and we like you, Gary, you know, we've been back and forth with one of the earlier singers. So there was a a version of Girls on Film. Girls on Film went through a number of iterations. We held on to that hook um, and and kept changing. With different lyrics? um... Or did did
1: Simon write those lyrics? Yeah, yeah. All
0: right. No, no, no. I see. No, he didn't write those lyrics.
1: It's interesting talking to you because it is. Unbelievably, like listening to myself giving an interview because of the parallels between what you were into growing up, what turned you on growing up—you know—you saw that Bowie night on a Tuesday night at the Rum Runner. I had seen a flyer that Steve Dagger had saying Bowie night at the Blitz Club. Actually, it wasn't the Blitz Club then; it was a, it was called Billy's, and then we eventually moved to Blitz the whole sort of yeah. thing that was seen that was happening in Birmingham was completely parallel to what was happening. Well, in for London. a
2: second there, I thought it was going to be that Rusty was going up to Birmingham and doing a Bowie night as well as yeah, doing yeah. the one in London.
1: But I remember when we, our first single came out just before yours in, 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 in 40 years ago in the, end of, uh, at the yeah. end of 1980. And we had a gig the next day. We did Top of the Pops. We had a gig up in um, yeah. the Botanical Gardens. yeah, And then we all went to the Rum Runner afterwards and then we went back yeah. to Paul Barrow's, I think it was Paul's place, or one of the twins, and uh, I ended up sleeping on the floor in his in his house, but I remember meeting Nick, and Nick saying, I've got a band, but I don't know if you were there, John. Were you? Were you?
0: Yeah, I was there, absolutely. I mean, I mean, the day before, we'd gotten the record. We got to cut a long story short. We took it back, played it on the sound <laughs> system, listened to it, made notes, Poo-pooed compared it. it to where we were at, and then we went to see you guys, oh. and... Um, you know and you've done top of the pops you looked amazing Yeah, you know, and the thing is of course you think oh well we're so different but you know from the outside looking in there you know there were a lot of similarities it was and a i scene. think for us yeah well well it became a scene the moment we saw you you know because it was like oh right you know there's there's something going on here and i think you guys i think betty page called you new romantic
1: and yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm
0: not exactly sure how that New romantic. Term, well, there's,
1: but it was like new romantic. I mean, Dylan yeah. Jones has probably got the not, authority on this now. But it was uh, there was a center page spread with us interviewed just before we released our first single, and it was called New Romantics. That was Betty, but a guy called Perry Haynes, who you know as well. Uh, yes. I think. I think he says that he invented it and wrote it in the Standard. Or I, I don't know what the truth is. But yeah, there was a scene, and I remember we came up to do that gig. We brought about twenty people on a coach. And I think yeah. by the time they got off the coach, they didn't look their best anyway. But they would have, it, was a, it was a bit like that f- sort of face-off in The Wild Ones, you know, <laughs> the Birmingham crew and the, and the, the sick, London crew. Yeah. Because also,
2: surely the first sign of a scene, if you have a scene, is that the, the thing that actually makes us is that the bands in it hate each other.
1: Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I remember going back and sleeping on the floor at, at Barrow's house and flat
0: that's that's amazing we were all we were all crashed i didn't know that yeah that's a little nugget right there i didn't know that
2: he nicked an ashtray (laughs) (laughs) ashtray.
1: great
0: you can have it
1: but uh you know then your time came as well didn't it you know i mean that that first album was all the stuff you'd been working on and building over how long
0: yeah i mean simon joined the band i think it was june and uh i said okay we've got a gig in a month so we need a gigs worth of material, you know. And, and and to me, I've always been driven to. I love stages, guys. I see a stage in a church hall. I'm like, I want to be on there. And I was that. That to me was the magic was was getting to do that, where you stood up on the stage above everybody else. The lights went down, and you know, and on whatever level, whether you're, whether you're in a little club or a church hall or a stadium, that you get to generate this this event if you like. And it's not even about everybody like worshiping me. It's really just about being able to create this, this musical experience that we all partake in. I think to some degree, it's about turning off the bullshit for 90 minutes. It's like turning off real life. And I always loved that. You know, that to me was the appeal when I used to go to see artists like Roxy Music or Queen, you know, so, or The Clash, was that just like all the, the BS of the day just got turned off because the experience of live music was so powerful. So for me, it's always been about we need material so we can create the show that's the drive for me
1: and um so it wasn't, so, it wasn't you about, you know, about that, making the, the records so much it wasn't about well, it n- was
0: less it. so like nick's the opposite he's the other side nick would live in the studio he would happily never go out on stage i mean or maybe once in a blue moon you know i, I love cue lights cut the lights. it's like my my blood pressure comes down my heart rate goes back to normal. Yeah.
2: Because from the very beginning, that, your records were always very sophisticated. And was there a, a worry about kind of recreating that live?
0: Well, not really. I mean, yeah. I mean, actually, the first couple of albums, what you hear is what you get. You know, it's like there's not that many layers of... But they sounded of, like uh, it. I mean, that's yeah. obviously
2: good production. They sounded like the future, you know, that was which is what the time was. Well, we were lucky
0: to be connected. Colin Thurston was like, we had Colin for the first couple of records. And, you know, Colin had worked on the Berlin, Bowie, Iggy Sessions. Mm -hmm. He'd become a go-to guy for new music. He was producing Bow Wow Wow Magazine. He did the first Human League album. He just raised our game. I can honestly say, you know, we all came out of the studio Sounding a lot better than we thought we were.
1: I mean, Andy had a pretty sort of heavy, unique sound. I mean, he wasn't trying to play Noel Rogers at all. He was more playing sort of, you know, a heavier rock sound, wasn't he?
0: The day I met Andy, he came down from Newcastle and he had a Marshall 50-watt combo and he he brought that with him and a guitar. And uh, I'd I'd watched the Old Grey test the night before and Gary Moore had been on it. I was really knocked out because the thing that nobody was, to me, to my limited knowledge, was doing was getting that sort of Nile Rodgers, tickety, tickety, tickety kind of clean funk sound, but also knew how to really play the power and really, really crank up the volume. And I heard that in Gary Moore. I mean, I wouldn't have said jazzy back then, but he could do both. And he was and in his solo and in this spot he did on the whistle test. And Andy walks in and says, "Oh yeah, Gary Moore. He's my favourite. He's my favourite guitar player." So that was like, okay, because what we're trying to do here, we want the groove, but we also want, we also want the thief. Honestly, Andy was the first guy that really that really got that, and he wasn't a punk rock guitar player. I mean, he wanted to be Angus Young, you know. I mean, he he probably knew more about, you know, that dominance and 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 major sevenths, and well, he was the only one that really knew about any of that stuff. He'd, he'd, he'd had a lot of experience running his own bands through U S air force bases in Germany. And, you know, I mean, we couldn't have done it. We just couldn't have done it without it. In in it would have been a very different proposition
1: in our scene, you know, in this club, you know, we, we sort of had this ready-made creatives around us. So we had, you know, kids who would, would design clothes for us, people who would write words and design the lights and, and, that, and take pictures, yeah. whatever. Did, was that the same with you guys up at the Rum Runner? Did you have a scene up in Birmingham? A
0: little bit. Not so much, So We were talking earlier about the DIY aspect, you know, and you would design your own flyers. I've got pages of early logos that I was designing, and, you know, and early posters. But, I mean, really, when we signed to EMI, and I mean, like you guys, I mean, we got a record deal really fast. You know, I mean, literally, we had, like, seven songs. And we got a record deal because it was a band moment,
1: wasn't it? It was and, and, and I, it
0: had been a band moment
1: since since the pistol. I know, and I think, you know, I mean, we've been signed, you know, and, and they were looking for another one of those, and there you were, and the EMI wanted it and uh, and and suddenly there was there was a scene growing within within a while there was you yeah. know there would been culture club come along, there were lots of bands at the time. But it did come down to, especially in the UK and Europe, it came down to sort of a bit of a face off between Duran and Spandau. There was that. Well, that was good for everyone, wasn't it? You know,
0: it was good for everyone because it gave it, it was like a spirit of uh, uh, of competition and it was great for the kids. But of course, like I love to say, but we got on famously. Talking
2: as a bystander here, I'm sitting here with (laughs) with one of Spanda (laughs) and one of Duran and I'm, and you know, my natural impulse is fight, 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 (laughs) fight.
1: Not the face, not the face. (laughs) (laughs) But obviously you guys ended up well, I mean, we all ended up doing well. There was one thing that really broke, I think, both of us in a big way, and that was MTV coming along in the in the eighties. Because, you know, it was all very well hearing our tunes on American radio, but it, it didn't make quite as much sense unless you saw the video. Was that it certainly was well, true for us? Was that true for you guys?
0: Well, the videos. I mean, I don't know about you, Gary, but I mean, I mean, videos were not on my radar. I mean, when I was thinking about what our album covers are going to look like and what our press photos are going to look like and what the what the lights and the clothes are going to look like i wasn't thinking of that videos are going to be like that yeah, this. Exactly. i had no i never even gave that a thought i never even put together the like the bohemian rhapsody thing that we saw when you know week after week after week on top of the tops and then i remember the vienna there was this film for ultravox's vienna which was like a take on the third man which
1: was russell mulberry who yes. ended well, up yes. directing our videos exactly our
0: videos
2: You fought over it, didn't you? You hustled for Russell.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I, I, I feel we were very, you know, that was something. I mean, listen, everybody that rises up, you know, that to some kind of, I mean, I don't want to say phenomenal, but to a really big level, there's some technological element that plays a part. You know, whether it's multi-track recording, TV, you know, radio, whatever it is, we had the music video. And I remember, you know, for us, we, you know, planet Earth had got us on top of the had gone top 10 in the UK. And the next territory it started breaking out of was Australia. And so, you know, EMI, were talking to our management about, well, you know, maybe the boys need to go down there and promote it. And everybody was like, "Well, a long way to go <laughs> to promote a single. And I remember like one of the ladies at EMI said, well, you could make a video. And it was like, a video? What's a video? <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, leave it to us. It, it's not going to cost long. Just show up at, at St. John's Wood at 9 o'clock on Thursday morning. And that's where we met Russell. You know, and Russell loved us. And when I say us, I mean Spandau and Duran. I mean, we were just like, I mean, he loved it. And little did we know, we walk into this scene, the music video scene, which was this industry in London. Talk about competition between Scott Mullaney, Grant, Russell, I mean, yeah. these guys are writing all the rules in London. Grant did our first You know, year. 79, 80, 81. I felt very fortunate to be the benefit of, of Russell's genius at, that, but, at, at but, that moment. But I
1: think we with Russell, Spandau may have started the video wars by chance. But actually it was a snow flurry because we were up in the Lake District shooting Musclebound, which was meant to be a day's shoot, you know. And then we got snowed in. And I know they pulled the the insurance money out, and uh, and we shot for three days. And we came back with this Game of Thrones mini-epic. And then I think yeah. you guys then shot your next video went, right, that's it, where are we going? We're going to Sri Lanka. Oh, cause yeah, because you,
2: <laughs> you basically pioneered the video as James Bond travelogue, didn't you?
0: <laughs> right, well, that, that's where MTV comes in, because MTV is this joint venture between Warner Brothers and American Express. And they're starting this music, 24-hour music television network. You know, when you went to America, you know, at that time, what would you hear on the radio? Van Halen, Led Zeppelin, mm-hmm. classic rock, classic rock, classic rock. And I think, honestly, if videos had, had existed, you know, for that format, that's what they would have had. But they couldn't play that. They didn't really exist. So they were forced to kind of go new music. And you know, we're looking for clips that have like a big, sort of budget kind of like they look glamorous you know with girls and exotic locations that was the seed that was planted that led to us stopping off at Sri Lanka on the way to an Australian tour and making three videos for 15 grand or something you know
1: I think that was a that was a genius idea and of course all all in the hands of Russell too and it broke the British bands then were, were the ones that all American kids were interested in. There was this beginning of this second yeah, British yeah, invasion, yeah, along yeah, with yeah. Boy George, of course. But for you, it was phenomenal. What happened to you in America was phenomenal. You were the new Beatles over there, without a shadow of a doubt. And how, how did that feel for you with all of your creative sensibility?
0: I mean, I'd always been very excited to go to America, particularly New York. And uh, I was. it was so exciting and so much fun. I mean, it was very, very culty. You know, we'd be getting support from college radio stations. We were playing the one club in the city that would have, like the equivalent of Bowie Nights, you know, that would have new music Fridays or whatever. We never went below the Mason-Dixon line until, we, until 1984. <laughs> Everything was up north. I mean, I remember going to Boston and meeting David Robinson from the cars, you know, and, and hitting it off and going back to his place. And, you know, and you really felt like you were on the cutting edge of things. But, you know, you've got to work, America. You know, you can't just go to America and just play two or three shows. You've really got to roll up your sleeves and you've got to go back back and forth. That was uh, a thing
2: that was said about you, I remember at the time, which is that I think a lot of people didn't really appreciate that you did do the proper Hank Williams got on the bus and slogged around toilets, right? You really did, didn't you?
0: You really have to. I mean, having said that, you know, MTV definitely helped. You know, and MTV and now...
3: fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.
1: This episode of Rock On Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement.
2: AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants and much more. Just
1: one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system.
2: To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals or you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare, AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good,
1: feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple.
2: Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel
1: packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash tours. That's drinkag1.com slash tours. Check it out.
0: You know, uh, this is, yeah, this is the Rio album. Um, so this is 82. And the summer of 82, as MTV is going online around the country, we can see these pockets yeah because I being records a, starting.
1: New, we did an American tour. New York was last. And New York never had MTV. And we had a completely different audience. We had an art audience. Where The places where MTV existed, we had girls, young girls who were going crazy for the band. And I suppose that, no matter how much you were slogging around America, John, the young girls that ended up buying so many of your records really could got you through MTV, didn't they?
0: I do think that MTV had a profound effect on a certain type of person. Countless, countless hairdressers, makeup artists, clothes designers, you know, arty types that are from Columbus, Ohio. You know, that literally, like, the the video, the whole kind of presentation that MTV was opened their minds to there being another, (laughs) you know, another world, a more of an artistic world that existed outside of of Missouri or Wisconsin. It was very powerful culturally, I think, those first few years of MTV.
1: I suppose as well... You were, it was possible then to be a global band because there were, even Europe was starting to open up, wasn't it? And, and sucking in these videos and you could be successful anywhere.
0: Well, we were fortunate to be on a record label, you know, that was an international record label that coordinated its products internationally. Europe was tricky for, for Duran, actually. Europe didn't really come easy. I would say that Europe, we never really conquered there's one or two territories that were very successful for us. But overall, it was quite challenging. And so we kind of lent into the States, put more efforts over there and um, Asia, Australia and Japan.
1: What was the record that first really made it for you? What was the moment you went, this is it? Fuck, well, you know, we are now global superstars. America have, have taken us. Back
0: to the idea that we had this record label that was a multinational record label that was based out of London. There is none anymore. You know, and, you know, Hungry Like the Wolf, Capital Records, which was the U.S. subsidiary of MI, they took that record to radio three times. They went back with it and back with it more, you know, whatever they do to say, you must play this record. You must play this record. It took a lot of doing. You know, there was the MTV. MTV were into the band, but you needed that FM, that widescreen FM thing. And and hungry like the wolf was was the song that did that, and um, you know, and that was summer '82.
2: You also had the first video that was censored, didn't you? <laughs>
0: With the girls on film. Well, again, that, you know, that we never got existed as a concept. Yeah. Well, we got very savvy managers. They were just very conscious of, of areas that you could exploit. That's not an idea that I would have had. I would have never said, oh, let's do a Fiesta-style you know, music <laughs> video and, and release it on Playboy video, you know. Well, I, I just wouldn't have got that. You know, you, Gary, I can't speak for you guys, but Gary, you had a visionary managing you, and Steve was, and I always say this to anybody that's trying to get a leg up, you've got to have a partner. You've got to have somebody outside of the artist who can see things differently, who has yeah. a different objectivity
1: yeah, you're you're, you're, absolutely, going you're on. absolutely right. I mean, when we formed our band, you know, you're in it because you're a guitar player. You're in it because you're a drummer. You, you know, Tony Hadley's in it because he's got a leather jacket and he was taller than anyone else. You know, it was like that. And then Steve Dagger comes along, who managed the band in the end. And he wasn't in to being a guitarist. He wasn't into being a musician. All his heroes were managers. So Brian Epstein, Andrew Lou Goldham, Kit Lambert. These, these yeah. were people he would be talking about and telling stories about. Malcolm McLaren, although he wouldn't have admitted that at the time, of course, was another one. I remember back in the 80s, you know, hearing that name, Steve Dagger was
2: as glamorous as you were, you know, in the same way that Kit Lambert is is so associated with the But You're right, which is why also I think a lot of managers go wrong when the bands are really successful, because it's not about ideas anymore. It's about running a business, and I think that's when the wheels tend to come off. Yeah, Not with Steve, not in Steve's case.
1: Because you guys, you fell away from the Barrow's Brothers in the end, right?
0: It just got too much for everybody. And, um, you know, and the band kind of split in two ways. And Andy and I went off and did Power Station. And Simon, Nick, and Roger did Arcadia. And the Barrows stayed with Arcadia. I'm not sure why we, Andy and I, kind of broke away. And we asked David Harper, who was Robert's manager, to sort of start, you know, doing our business for us. And, um, yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you about that guy, you know, because, you know, how did you come to meet Robert?
2: I met Robert when I was in Icehouse, the Australian band. Um, we did these festivals around Germany with Crosby, Stills and Nash, and Robert Palmer was on the bill, and he just liked the look of me. And he invited me out to uh, Nassau. You had the right uh, suit. And he invited me out to Nassau, and we wrote a load of songs, one of which was Go to Zero.
0: Yes. So, yes.
2: Which, is, uh, which I like Phenomenal, to think is what got fantastic him...
0: fantastic track.
2: Yeah, thank you. Which I yeah. like to think is well, what got him the know, gig. <laughs> were you guys splitting up at yeah. that
1: point, John? Were you actually splitting up at that point? Had you fallen out with, with Simon and Nick? Or was this just our hiatus? It was just the
0: pressure of, of, of delivering, you know, we were just under a huge amount of pressure, you know, we were cranking out these songs that kind of had to be big hits. And, um, you know, and we're doing it under, you've got kids camped outside your home, camped outside the studio, you know, and it's, just a lot of pressure. Was there everybody... also an
1: element of, of saying, you know what, we've got a really teen audience because we had the same audience as you, you know, we had that teen audience as well and I know that you we love that audience but at the same time we're thinking, but I want to be in a credible band of musicians that wear boys like me as well. Was it a mm. bit of that with Arcadia and Power Station?
0: We've always had a very fragile dynamic between the, I would say, the rock, the organic rock feeling and the kind of programmed electronica and to me you know when we get it right like on a song like hungry like the wolf it's great and um i think andy and i felt that the third album was sort of overproduced and was like you know didn't have the kind of balls i hate to use that word but it didn't quite have the balls that we that we wanted to do so we we saw this opportunity to sort of like sidle off over here and do something a bit more organic and didn't really know what we'd be starting but
2: was there a plan for Arcadia to happen or was it just like well they're doing that, so I suppose we
0: should do this?
1: I or, think so. <laughs> I think that's
0: what I think that's what happened.
1: Yeah. But Power Station was the most successful of the two. I mean there was some there was some, Well
0: that's know, not for me to say. But but was it <laughs> well, no, but it well, was a you sound. Know, was,
2: you defined us the, the Power Station defined a sound. I mean that's the sound
1: of, of Riptide, Robert's album, you know. It's comes yes. directly from the yes. And who was the drummer? Remind me, I think. Tony Thompson. Tony Thompson. <clears throat> I mean, God, that must have been on un- how was it for Roger then at that point, John? Where was he?
0: Well, you know, Roger had gotten married, you know. He kind of moved to the Cotswolds, you know. I didn't want the party to stop. That was the thing no. for me. I just, I was just like, let's go more, louder, faster, you know. Let's go to New York. Let's, hey, Tony Thompson, let's get another project on the go, you know. I mean, it was... I remember being very jealous. I mean, it was, you know, it was just an amazing thing. It started out, it was like a stupid notion. It was like... I was dating Beebe Buell, you know, one of this, <laughs> one of these like these girls, you know, and she'd been with a few others before me. Wow. <laughs> and um, one she was a it. singer, <laughs> and uh, and I thought, let's do a song with Beebe, let's do a version of Get It On, and um, that was the genesis of it. And I got Dave Ambrose and may, am I, to, you know, give us a bit of studio time, and by the time. You know, we kind of got the schedule. I was I'd fallen out with BB, but we decided to do it anyway. And then Tony, Andy, and I were sort of thinking, well, why don't we do it like the MGs? You know, why don't we have like this this like backing band? And you know, we'll have different singers coming in and do different tracks. Bernard got on board, and um, and then Robert and Robert came in and sang. We'd written something. I think it was communication. And then he said, "What have you cut the T Rex track?" And so we put it up and he listened to it. He said, I'd like to have a go at it. And he sang it. And then Bernard said, you've got your singer; You don't have to look any further. Ben so I so became the Yeah.
2: I remember him going off because it was, it was the time I was first in Nassau. And when, just before I came back to it, he said, oh, I've got to go to New York. There's, you know, these Duran guys want me to have a go. I said, like, oh, yeah, I'll see. I was like, oh, OK. Yeah. yeah. And I think I might have jokingly said, oh, why don't you
1: take our songs with you? <laughs> which you <Yeah. he> didn't. <laughs> but, yeah, well, you know, we nearly toured with you on that, with the power station. I don't know if you know about that. We were in, the, it was a long negotiation. We were going to do an American tour together. And, oh, and then, and then wow. Robert left the band and Michael right. DeBar joined. And I think we got cold feet then. We didn't know what yeah. you guys were going to be like at that point. Yeah. I so mean, Robert was just
0: like, well, I haven't really signed up for this. I think he felt like he was being sort of pushed into something he didn't want to do. Plus, he was he was about to be out of his deal with Ireland. I don't think he had much money in the bank, to be honest. And I think, you know, I think he was sort of offered a situation he couldn't refuse, which was, let's get this album done, and then we can do a big deal. He signed to EMI subsequently. But I mean, he, he did Riptide, which is a masterpiece. Yeah. You yeah. know, yeah. I should have
2: quit then. I mean, the, the credits on that album is it says bass, Bernard Edwards, and Guy Pratt. It's, I just should have quit <laughs> yeah, then. I just never picked up the bass. <laughs> again.
1: How was it for you playing with working yeah, with man. Bernard Edwards, though? That was a massive hero of yours, wasn't he, John?
0: Amazing. Amazing. I mean, it was a little nerve wracking, but. Um, I mean, he was such a great producer, you know. I mean, the thing about, I talk about Nile Rodgers a lot, but Bernard also, I mean, these guys, they're the kind of musicians that I say, they've forgotten more than I will ever know. But they never made you feel small. They never made, I mean, that to me is the sign of a great, truly great musician producer mm. that can just, you, they play, they, they pull over a guitar and they start doing something and you just just gravitate towards them. You just want to be close but they never make you feel less than. They never make you feel like a kid. Those guys were always made us feel great. They were always celebrated the talent that we had, and they were all about bringing it out. And, um, you know, Bernard was not as sort of effusive as Niall. He was much more low-key. And, you know, having Tony, Tony was like having a fucking, you know, Bulldog in the room. I mean, Tony was was yeah. a lot... He took a lot of <laughs> <laughs> a lot of work. Right. Did you ever play with him, Guy?
2: Yeah, I, well, I did the last Power Station tour of Japan. Oh, right. In the 90s. Oh, when, when, yeah. what, 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 in the 90s. So John
1: had left by then?
2: <clears throat> John, yeah, they, came, they got back together in the 90s. Then you... Who, who was in the band when you were doing it? Well, I think, John, you decided you didn't want to do the tour. Then Bernard died. Right. So it was awful. And there was this Japanese tour booked. I think it was an American tour, booked, which I didn't do. And then... Uh, and the way it was sold to me was like, well, you'd be standing in for Bernard. So I was like, well, you can't really say no to that. And also it was hanging out with Robert and going to Japan. So and was Andy in the band? Andy was in the band. It wasn't that's great. That's, that
1: sounds like a, I lot, mean, of, it was a lot of partying, I would have thought.
2: There was quite a lot of partying and it, it, it didn't really feel, you know, it didn't really have the right energy behind it. But it, it was great fun and how, uh, play some great music.
1: How though. did So how did the marriage come back together? How did you guys come back together once Power Station had sort of run its course and Arcadia had had their little way?
0: Well, I remember Nick came to see me. By I I, now I'm living in New York, and I'm living there with my girlfriend, and Nick comes to town with his girlfriend, and, you know, and he just says, look, you know, we can do our own things. I mean, Nick's very good like this. You know, he's, he's really true to the cause, you know, and he's like, look, we can, do, we can do our own things. And we have a very broad church. I mean, everybody in Durant gets to do whatever they want, but you always come back. You know, maybe I was like, I don't know. It was something maybe I needed to hear at that time. We didn't know that we were going to come back and it was going to be a very different picture. You know, we didn't know that Andy and Roger were not going to come back. We were thinking, okay, so it's time to put the five-man band together. But it didn't work out like that. And so it took a while. What we did find is that, you know, when we finally did get back to the studio and we realized that for different reasons Andy and Roger weren't going to be playing with us, the three of us, we go into this like siege mentality. We're like, oh shit! It's just the three of us, and we've got to make this thing work. And Simon and Nick and I became bonded like crazy. Wow.
1: And, and what um, was the record you were making? You know, that and was Steve came. Tories, So that was with Ben. No which is
2: a, yeah. a great record. But it was with NAR, But there was, oh, but because that was an incredible challenge. Lots of bands have lost more than one member, but not at once. I mean, that was mate, you lost two people right. at once and came back
0: from that. I've and got did, to say that is a tip well,
2: of the hat. So did that. Warren?
1: Did Warren play on that? Was that with Warren? Or he was, did
0: play on that. Right. Now, here's something that could not happen today. You know, so Andy's moved to Los Angeles and unbeknownst to us, he's made a record deal and he's got, he's working on his own record and he forms a band with Steve Jones on second guitar, Terry Bozio on drums and Patrick Ahern on bass. Patrick and Terry are the rhythm section from Missing Persons. Warren Cucarullo's band, right? So Warren starts calling us in the studio and says, "Hey, uh, you know, I'm, you know, you, I know you guys are looking for a guitar player." And we're like, "No, we're not looking for a guitar player. We've got a guitar player. <laughs> I think you're looking for a guitar player." Yeah, and we're like we're like, No, 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 Ray, we've got guitar late. He's just, you know, he's gonna be coming over soon and, and Warren's like, I don't think so. He's formed a band with my rhythm section and we're like, What? I <laughs> love it. I, love it. <laughs> I
3: mean,
0: can you imagine now, you know, with the internet and whatnot? There's just no way, you can't do anything for <laughs> that world knowing about it in real time. So that's kinda of how we found out. So we'd moved the project to New York. We were finished doing overdubs and mixing in New York and so Warren came out. And we just thought, well, let's try him out. And he came in, he played on a few songs, and it was like a contractual thing, and he played on a couple of songs. But Niall really played the bulk of the guitar on that, on that album.
1: Oh, he did. Great. Amazing. And the, and the album... and that's a killer
2: was, riff, that notorious riff. Yeah. is It's such a... a I do love. Yeah.
1: Where did that come from, that? Talks us through the history of that song. Nick and I had started
0: demoing tracks with Steve Ferroni in London, just like jamming sort of ideas. And we were giving all the titles, Hitchcock film titles, so all these demos had like there was rope, there was vertigo, there was Notorious. So, but you've always, done, you've always
2: done film titles, haven't you, John? Doesn't that that goes quite a way back?
1: Well
0: we Some did, like it I hot we <laughs> did, yes, we did look to film titles.
1: When are you mm-hmm. writing the craze?
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> anyway, go on. So carry on. Not- notorious.
0: Well, yeah, and notorious, you know, I forget what parts we had of it, but it was also when we were we were at air when it was on Oxford Circus and Prince had come in to play at the at Wembley on the parade tour. And like everybody, I mean, oh, London yeah, was just yeah. going I nuts that. for it. And it We were all Circus going, for a week, And we yeah. were all going. And Niall had gone, joined him on stage in a club. And uh, I think kind of, you know, it was really like Niall sort of demonstrating it. I mean, it's a James Brown you know, riff, you know, which, which Prince had also used. And I think it's really like Niall sort of showing how that kind of a thing, you know, happened.
1: Was Nile a co-writer on that? No, he wasn't. And you know what, that's also something that has really changed in
0: the last 20 years. Producers now always take a piece of the writing, but back then they never did. Producers could come up with seriously important, you know, musical ideas, but that that's not what George Martin, you know, I mean, like they—they they never got. That wasn't what they did, you know. A producer's job was to get the absolute best out of the out of the artist, you know, and whatever it took. I think Niall, to his credit, you know, was never really been given the credit that, say, Quincy Jones has been given, yeah. you know. And uh, you know, she could never got the Grammys, you know. He's really had to, you know, I mean, to know Nile is to love him, you know. To work with Nile to really is to really get him, you know. Unfortunately, he's had to be his biggest cheerleader right
1: what year are we talking about now 86 85
0: 85 86 so how
1: was that then going out on tour without Andy without Roger and and how sort of accepting were the fans at that point of your new lineup well
0: they were but you know we we I mean this you know the records weren't selling it the same way and and you know I often talk about the zeitgeist if you're lucky right once in your life you're in it you're riding it right and it's, that means you are the shit. You're not looking left or right. You're not looking for inspiration anyway. You're in it. If you can be in it for a year, that's pretty good. The, our idols, you know, like Bowie, you know, he was in it for like four years, you know? Yeah. But like the thing about being in it is you know when you're not in it. And by the time Notorious came out, I was watching like where music was and where the hip shit was. And it was over there and it wasn't where we were. We were trying to play catch up. And so we would say to ourselves, well, there's only three of us now, you know. And, uh, I mean, we were, you know, we were proud of that record, of the record that we made. And we put a show together that had, like, you know, horn section, piano player, backing vocalist, you know. I mean, it was a funky show. I saw you open for Bowie. You know, and Bowie. it was organic. Yeah. And, right. You know, so it was great to do. It was great fun to be in a band like that. But, um, you know, you were just aware that, you know, you were going to have to Pedal a little faster, you know. And, um, and I mean, around about this time now, I'm starting to get a bit like, like drugs and booze are getting a bit intense. And it's, it's quite difficult, you know. It's quite difficult. MTV are like, oh, you know what? We're not, not really feeling this one. And Radio One are the same. And, you know, it's a different day. Mm-hmm.
1: I've got a few stories. My first time I met you guys properly, if I hadn't met you on Barrow's floor already, John, we were doing Tommy's pop show together. In Germany, and then we, we were all really excited that we were all going to go out and have a drink that night in the hotel bar. I remember the VIP rope had been set up for us, you know. And uh, the next day, we were flying back yeah. to London to do the Band Aid record.
0: Amazing. And
1: I, rem- I remember us, everyone decided we would have this kind of mad drinking competition. And our star striker, who was our drummer, John Keeble. He was out in the first five minutes. He was literally <laughs> under the floor before he, the Twiglets had even been served, you know. But I remember all of us being quite sort of paranoid about the next day, we're going to... Nick saying, we, we're going to need a makeup artist to meet us at, at Heathrow Airport. There's gonna be so many people <laughs> at Heathrow Airport. And we get to Heathrow, and there's nobody there. They're all outside Psalm, of course, you know. And then right. Spandau, screw up. I don't know how you arrived. We screw up because our record company send us a Daimler princess to pick us up and take us to Psalm. Of course, like Sting has got, you know, been dropped off around the corner, and the Banana Armor kids drop, turn up in some tiny little Volkswagen.
2: Paul Weller's got a Guardian under yeah. his arm. <laughs>
1: but it was quite an extraordinary day, wasn't it, to be there at that? With suddenly all these amazing. bands we were in competition with were all in this tiny studio. Um, You know, boy, George was flying.
0: Well, it does speak to the sort of fraternal aspect of what we were all doing, you know, and that Bob could see that. I mean, obviously, Bob was, I mean, it was remarkable what he achieved, you know, and how he, you know, how he seduced, how he went. I mean, I remember when Simon presented it to us. I mean, honestly, I mean, Simon was like, no, we're doing this. And Nick and I were like, really? You know, I'm not sure. Is it the right look for Duran? You know, sort of thing. And and Simon was like, no, we're going to do this. With zero cynicism. You know, and I mean, in that day, the spirit of that day, yeah. I mean, I remember sitting in the control room when Trevor was producing Bono, you know, and Bono singing his line and Trevor just going, that one's for the stadiums. You know, <laughs> but you know- like, And at that point, like you two, I mean, I mean, like you two were not, they were like in the waiting
2: room. I, I mean, they I were remember- not even... I remember, well,
1: I say, why are that Irish punk band here? You know, they're not. They're not quite in the same league, are they? Well, because remember,
2: this was <laughs> yeah, at the time. Yeah. Remember, there was a the moment where it was going to be you two or Simple Minds.
1: Yeah, there was.
0: You remember, yeah. there was actually a toss-up moment there.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, I really love the Cool and the so those guys were there. And I think Bob had seen them out seen them out the day before or something and he said, hey, you, can, you know, to Robert Bell, like, come on down. Well, the know? most extraordinary moment and, was uh,
1: we, we were there in the morning, obviously, and Bob then was actually on the phone to Boy George. He'd woken him up in his hotel room in New York and said, get your ass over here now. Yeah, And I remember, you amazing. know, a few hours went by, and Boy George walked through the door because he'd flown over on Concord in three and a half hours. It was, it was an extraordinary moment. The other story that I remember, which makes me laugh about partying with you guys and hanging out with you guys is um 1987 we were doing a tv show together at the Ku club in ibiza and i can't remember what it was what? for but that was um, that
2: it was that the olympics launch
1: yes thing. it might have been the olympics launch right and freddie mercury doing barcelona exactly so so spandau are all at this big party at roman polanski's house and uh and i'm standing with steve dagger and all of a sudden this um this security guy comes up to us. And what had happened apparently is you guys were flying in on a on a plane, and then said to the pilot can you go through to Ground Control and see if you can get in touch with a band called Spandau Ballet and ask them if they're going out. <laughs> so the so ground the pilot spoke to Ground Control. Ground Control spoke to the chief of police oh in Ibuka who got in touch with the security okay. guy, who found us in the party and said, Duran wants to know if you're going out. And we, we passed the information back. And the next Weird. thing we know, you are at the party. Simpler times. We always had our, always had
0: our priorities, right?
1: Yeah, but what's incredible about you guys and you know we obviously blew it like a thousand other bands you know very few bands stay together and make it through the hard times I mean you actually got back together all five of you in 2005 Duran have never officially split up I do remember being at that gig at Wembley being hugely jealous that you were all back on stage together, but being totally inspired. At that moment, I worked my butt off to try and get Spandau Ballet back together, even though we have been through just as many crises as you had. But that must have been a great feeling. I mean, it's like
0: life, isn't it, guys? It's hard work. You know, it's hard work. And I think, you know, we're lucky that we had a few years where it was play, where it was fun. But, I mean, that reunion, oh, my God. I mean, I don't know how... I mean, we made it onto the stage. How we got there without me killing somebody, I just don't know. You know, and sometimes you're on a conference call, and I mean, you're meditating, you know, because you just want to levitate. So it is, you do it, but it isn't easy, you know, and I think that people think, because it is fun at the beginning, and if you're in a band, the chances are you're in a band because you've you've got four or five guys, and you all kind of want to, you want the same thing, you know, and you all sort of, you know, you kind of like the same thing, but you grow, and you grow apart. I mean I remember with Andy you know and you know Andy was back and it was like the original band and it was, I mean, getting to those gigs it was like spinal tap man I mean I it was really difficult but we made a record but Andy just wasn't game you know it just wasn't game and I remember just reaching a point where I thought you know what I'm going to let go I'm going to let go of him it's just not worth it you know we've got four out of five today and uh, now we've got this empty chair you know and actually the empty chair can be really good you know because trying to keep that chemistry I don't know what you guys find but you know for me it's the collaborators that, that breathe life into it because you know I know what all of my guys are going to say before they even open their mouths I know what their ideas are going to be I know what they're—I know where they're coming from you know we've got like Errol Alkanen on the new record it's just like his energy it's like is amazing, and he can, and he's getting me playing like the best bass I played in a long time. Did you do some work with Graham Coxon? Graham's playing guitar yeah. on the new record. Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. You know, absolutely. I mean, he's a he's brilliant. He's, a, he's incredible. Yeah, mate. You know, I think and, I think and, and you tried gives, to it,
1: call me, John, and it's just not gone through yet. For some <laughs> I don't know what's gone on there? Yeah,
0: I don't know why that's never really happened, Gary. I mean, we, we you know, I remember we almost. We almost did some soundtrack work together, didn't we? we, on, did, we a, did. on an Alice project, he's he very that. good in the yeah. band
2: that we're in. Unfortunately, in, this, in you know, we're together playing together with Nick Mason, The Sourceful of Secrets. And poor old Gary, he's forever keeps getting his reviews where they go, Wow, who knew Gary Kemp could play guitar like
1: that? And poor I, old Gary's I, getting really God, upset I was
0: so bummed. when you came out to LA to play. I was so bummed you didn't let me know. i was oh, dying oh, that man,
1: John, oh, John. Yeah. You know what? Next now, time. Nowadays, Next time, yeah. nowadays, definitely, nowadays, we all appreciate each other much more more, don't we? We can't wait to meet up properly.
0: You know what, I just wanted to just
1: go back to the, just take you back to the very beginning and think about how, I'm envious of you because you've still got those bunch of guys that you met in the late 70s, you and Nick still sit in a room with a drum machine and uh, you know, you're still trying to make the best music you possibly can together, you're trying to make the best band that you could ever be, still happen. You still have that dream, don't you? And it's still working for you.
0: Well, I want to be you, Gary. Let me tell you, I want to be you. And I often think I want to be like Gary, more like Gary. <laughs> I think those of us that are driven to be successful, particularly in the art, I mean, like if I've got Italian food on my plate, I want that Indian meal that's in front right. of somebody else. I right. just can't right. help it. I always, I always think somebody's got it better than me. But, you know, I think we appreciate the privilege of what we get to do you know i had no idea i was going to become a full-time professional musician into my 40s let alone 60s it's ridiculous you know but it's it's something you've really got to treasure right you've really got to nurture it and look after it because i mean i think the first few years was like it was like a fly by night i felt a bit of a fraud to be honest i didn't feel like i could play all that well and i'd come to so much success so easily So when things started going south, I thought, oh, here we go. This is it. I knew this was coming. Simon, Nick, Roger, you couldn't meet three better guys in the music business. And you mean a lot to a certain
1: generation as well, don't you? You mean a lot to a certain generation, Mm. you know, which is still there. Well, isn't that
0: wonderful? I mean, isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing to have touched people like that? I mean, I remember I came over to London to do Martin's This Is Your Life. And I was sitting backstage with the Shirley... And, uh, you know, with some family members that were waiting to go on. George Michael was there as well. And True started playing as a cue for something. I'm not exactly sure. And the way that they, the way that they emoted, oh, my God. Oh, my God. It was like, and I realized, that, like that song, what it meant to them. It's so precious. And, you know, and to have that, when, you know, you've got to know how important music is. You know what I mean? You know when I was a kid I spent hours in my room listening to fucking Starman and listening yeah. to you know yeah. what you know I yeah. just all of my energy and all of my feelings you know I still you know do. in in Brighter White Swan you know so, I mean, to be able to be a part of the next generation, yeah. you know, to be a part of their experience, but, really something.
1: And thank you for being part of our rock on tours now. You, you're exactly. now. Yeah, this we're, is... we're being
2: frantically <laughs> wound
1: up with oh, yeah.
2: This is great. Cause I'm we've very gone proud on and on, on, on. to be a part of it. <laughs> oh, yeah, man, you. listen,
1: I can't wait to actually see you in person again. But it's great to reach across and, and say hello to you. And yeah, thank it's
2: great
0: you. To be, yeah, both of you. Love you both. Thank you.
1: Cheers, John. All Cheers, the best.
2: John. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode of Rock on Tours, which, like all of them, could have just gone on forever, frankly. So thanks very much for listening. Thank you, John. Thank you. See you at the next one.
3: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.